Hello again, Boonami. Thanks for joining me for episode 13 of my podcast. This week, I'll tell you about the time that I almost came unstuck at a big New Year's Eve DJ gig. I'll tell you about three occasions where I've been in the presence of Iggy Pop and seen firsthand what a wonderfully kind and caring man he can be. I'll tell you how to explain the word irony to a nine-year-old and how I came to write and record a song about a small plane and its pilot, which to this day has never been released. It's not even been played in public. As always, at the end of the episode, you'll hear an unsigned band. Today, it's going to be another Manchester band called Dantabills, an amazing band. I'd like to thank the people at Distorted Productions and all our friends at Red True Barbecue, like I do every week, for helping me to get the podcast together. And before I kick off this episode of Storytime with Boone, I did mention last week that I was about to launch another podcast to run alongside Storytime with Boone. Clint Boone's set to go. The idea with the new podcast and the Twitter and SoundCloud pages that we're setting up is it's going to be a useful platform for upcoming and unsigned bands and artists to get the music out there and hopefully get noticed. The new podcast is going to be called Clint Boone's Set to Go or Set to Go for short, number two. Yeah, do you like that? Catchy. And the bands that I picked to go on it will be those that I consider to be ready for a record deal, ready for radio, set to go, if you like. Those bands that I don't select that put the music forward will still get will still get to use the Twitter feed and the SoundCloud account to show the music off. So it's um, everybody can get involved. I'm hoping that if we do it right, it might become one of those um, go-to places. I'm doing that with my fingers. Go-to places where record labels, publishers, industry people in general will go looking for new music. The actual podcast itself is going to feature 10 tracks on each episode with basic information on the bands that I've chosen. Initially, I'm going to be doing Set to Go as a monthly podcast, and if it develops, we'll go fortnightly, etc. Episode one is going to be available next week, and it will feature the 12 bands or artists that are featured on the first 12 episodes of Storytime with Boone. So that's Set to Go. It's going to be for any genre of music. Don't, don't think you have to be an indie band. Don't think you have to have guitars. Anything. Anybody's welcome, right? Set to Go. For legal reasons, if you're tied into any kind of publishing or recording deals, I can only use 30 seconds of your track. If you're completely unsigned, I can play the full song. So get involved. Follow the new Twitter account, at CB Set To Go. That's the number two, CB Set To Go. And on SoundCloud as well, we're on there as Clint Boone's Set To Go. Okay, time to tell some stories. Story time with Boone, with Red's True Barbecue. 31st of December 2001, New Year's Eve. I did a big DJ gig up north, Daft Money. The promoter who booked me said, um, play whatever you want, usual stuff, no shabadu addy. But he says, make sure at midnight you do the bells. Have you got any bells? I said, of course I've got bells. He said, it's pretty important, though. we must have the bells at midnight. I've put it on the flyers and everything. Absolutely no problems, mate, I said. I'll bring me Chimes of Big Ben, sound effects CD that I've got. He said, seriously, we've got to have the bells, please don't forget. I'm thinking, fuck's sake, I do this for a living. I've been doing this DJ shit since 1975. Don't tell me how to do my job. I'm thinking that. I didn't say that. So I turned up at the club on the night, got my gear set up, doors open at 10. People started piling in because it was New Year's Eve, great atmosphere, everybody battered. Promoter keeps coming to DJ, but he'd like to make sure everything's all right and looking a bit stressed, you know, a big night for him, you know what I mean? And he popped in about 11 o'clock with a couple of them big um, confetti cannons, you know, big massive fireworks that fire shit out. And he said, don't forget bells at midnight, yeah, you're right. And I said, yeah, mate. I said, you don't need to mention the bells again. I've got me chimes of Big Ben sound effects CD in my bag. It's always in there. You don't need to mention it again. Yeah, stop going on. So I'm banging out the tunes. 
crowd are getting all excited and that. About 10 to midnight, promoters are in the DJ booth again. Don't forget the bells, will you, Clint? I'm like that, mate, I'm on it. Wind your neck in. I know what I'm doing here. So I goes in my bag to get me Big Ben sound effects CD. I used to have all these CD wallets, you know, like various like disco and rave and hip hop. <laughs> so I start looking for me Big Ben sound effects CD and I'm thinking, where is it now? And I, I couldn't find it. I'm thinking, I'm sure it was in here, Big Ben sound effects, where is it? What would it be filed under? And trouble is, it's not something that I use every week, is it? It dawned on me at that moment. I'm thinking, I've not actually seen it for, well, 12 months actually, to the minute since I saw this CD. I'm thinking, oh, my arse went big time. And I was getting a lot of money for this gig, with it being New Year's Eve, you double everything, don't you? Taxes are double, and I double my fees and that. Promoter stood right behind me like that, big grin on his face, confetti cannon in his hand, doing an impression of uh, ringing the bells. He stood there like fucking Quasimodo, this fella. And he's like, oh, five minutes, mate, five minutes, come on, bring it on. Getting right in the mood he was. And the flyer for the night actually had written on it in big letters, full New Year Big Ben countdown. He actually said that on it. And I can't find this CD, I've not got it. So I thought, right, I can either do an impression of a bell down the mic, which isn't going to look right good, is it? Boon army, boing, boing. It just anticlimax or what? So I think the only other thing I can do is think if I've got a record in my collection on CD, there's got a bell on it, and I'm sat there thinking, the clock's ticking, and people on dance floor are all starting to look at the watches like they do, pointing at me, look at that, hey, point like Clint, nearly the time, about two minutes to go. And then I got this moment of divine inspiration. A record came to mind that had one bell strike in the middle of it, and it was a, a recent at the time, electronic dance record with a single bell chime in the middle of it. A track called Aerodynamic by Daft Punk, second track on the Discovery album that had come out that year. So I thought, right, that'll be in dance. So I grabbed my dance CD and I was flicking through like, wafting through like that. <laughs> Two minutes midnight, waft, 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 where is it, where is it? Trying to look cool. I remember thinking I should really put these in alphabetical order. Anyway, then I found it, I found the disc, slipped it into the CD player, trying not to look like I was flapping. Queued up the part of the disc in the middle with the bell chime on it, one bell chime. Got on the mic, did the countdown, 10, 9, 8, shouted Happy New Year, and then just started hitting play, pause, cue. Play, pause, cue, boing, play, pause, cue, boing. Kept it away for about a minute, my finger killing, promoter firing confetti cannons left, right and centre, and it worked, no one noticed, I got away with it. So every time you hear this record in future, imagine me, Clint Boone, club DJ, <laughs> double, double the normal money, desperately digging through my DJ bag for that Big Ben CD. And a bit of advice for all DJs, always check your bells before you go out on New Year's Eve. I once saw an icon of British goth rock music backstage at the Reading Festival in the afternoon. He instructed his minder to remove the film from the camera of a kid who'd just run up and taken a photograph of him. I'm not going to name the person in this instance, but instead I'll tell you a far more positive story on the same topic, and it happened at the same gig. I saw Iggy Pop at the same Reading Festival do the most incredible headline set. It was 1991, Reading Festival. 
And if you've never seen him live, he puts absolutely everything into his performance. It's like someone's told him, this is the last gig you're ever going to do, Iggy. Your number's up. Lights are out for you tonight, mate. Get on. It's the most primal thing you'll ever see in the world of rock and roll. When the gig's finished, Iggy is totally spent. There's nothing left. There isn't an ounce of energy left in the man. And that's how it was at the end of this set at Reading. I'd watched him from the side of the stage. The set was epic. It was several encores. And it was exhausting just watching him perform. He was literally being carried from the stage at the end. He was helped down the ramp by two roadies and a security guard. Iggy could hardly stand up. And when they got to the bottom of the ramp, there was a young boy there waiting, only probably 10 or 11 years old, and he came running over to meet Iggy and to try and get his autograph. And it was an awkward moment. It was the last thing that Iggy needed at that moment in time. Or so the security guard thought. This guard stepped away from Iggy and into the path of this kid, ready to intercept him and march him off, away from his hero. And Iggy shouts over to the guard, It's okay, man. Bring the boy over here. Like that. Iggy's still there. He's got his shirt off, sweat still pouring from him. Those veins of his still stood out like only Iggy Pop's veins do. And he just made that boy feel like the most important person in the world. And I'll never forget the kid's face. He was beaming with happiness. And there's a good chance that boy one day will hear me telling this story and he'll know exactly who he is because he was the only kid behind that stage when Iggy came off, when he was carried off that night, Reading Festival 1991. And it's another lovely example of the golden art of Iggy Pop. You hear these stories all the time about him. You never hear about Iggy being an arsehole. He's always a top bloke, a lovely man. And me and Iggy crossed paths a couple of times later on in life. Once was in Toronto at the studios for the Much Music TV channel. This is late 1993. I was in town for a promo trip with uh, Tom, the Inspiral singer at the time. And we were sat in the reception at Much Music, watching this big TV screen all the way to the TV screen was above the reception, he said. And Iggy Pop was on. And I assumed it was like a recording of an interview. And I said to the reception, I said, uh, when was Mulatto in? Iggy. She said, excuse me? I said, when, was, uh, when did Iggy Pop come in? And she said, uh, he got here about 30 minutes ago. And I said, what, you mean he's still here? She said, yeah, he's, he's behind you. I thought, here we go, that old pantomime gag. They must have it in Canada as well. He's behind you. And I looked around, so there he is, there's a window, and he's there on the other side of the window doing this um, interview with the TV host on Much Music Live, right behind me, on the other side of the glass. And I said to her, right, we've got, we've got to meet him. She said, no problems, he'll be done in a minute, I'll take you through. So she did, he finished his interview, the red light went off, and she took us through to the studio, introduced us. And he was a total gentleman. Again, you always hear about this warmth of Iggy Pop, the golden art of Iggy Pop. And he was in town promoting his, I think it was his American Caesar album that he brought out around that time. And he asked us what we were doing that night and we said nothing, we were just hanging out, staying in Toronto. And he said, hey, give me a call, man, we can maybe hang out together. And I'm thinking, what, did he just say, we can hang out? And I said, sorry, he said, yeah, we can hang out. He said, give me a call. So he, he gets a pen and paper, gives me the hotel number, told me his room number, he said, I'm checked in under my real name, which is Jimmy. I said, I know, Jimmy Osterberg. Jimmy fucking Osterberg, a.k.a. Iggy Pop, giving me his number. Put that on your CV, Boone. That'd actually look good on a gravestone, wouldn't it? If that was my only epitaph, Iggy Pop, give me his number. <laughs> you know what I mean? Anyway, I phoned him that night. I phoned his hotel room up. And as it happens, when I did phone, he'd gone to bed for the night. So I had a nice chat with his wife. She said he's crashed out, totally gone under. I said, give him my regards, tell him it was lovely meeting him. And on I went, that was it. Fast forward six years, almost exactly six years. 
I was at the Riverside TV studios in uh, London, Hammersmith, London, to appear on uh, TFI Friday with my band, Clint Brewing Experience. This was late 1999. I was single, like no sugar, just uh, just come out and created a bit of an impact. You know, it's, uh, I think it was just outside the top 40. And the host of the TFI TV show, Chris Evans, had personally invited us to come on the show and play live, which is quite a big thing, really. And Iggy and his band were on the same programme. Iggy's dressing room was just a bit further down the corridor than ours. So we'd done a couple of practice runs through the afternoon, running through White North Sugar, just rehearsing it, getting everybody checking the camera angles and all that. And then we were back in the dressing room, chilling out. I think we are going to perform live just after seven o'clock, if I remember correctly. So we sat in our dressing room, and there's a knock on the dressing room door. Have you noticed how a lot of my stories have got that line in them? There's a knock on the dressing room door. That features quite a lot in this podcast, doesn't it? So there's a knock on the door of the dressing room. And this little woman pokes her head around, a young woman, should I say. She pokes her head around the door, nervously, and she said, Hiya, is this Eggie Paps' dressing room? And I said, sorry? <laughs> she said, Eggie Paps, is this his dressing room? And I'm there, giggling a bit. I said, sorry, love, who are you after? Eggie Paps, is that you? Are you Eggie Paps? She kept saying it, and we all, everybody in the room knew what she meant, but she didn't know who Iggy Pop was. Somebody had obviously said to her, can you go to Iggy Pops' dressing room and tell him it's time for his filming or his interview or whatever? So she's running around thinking she's looking for this bloke called Eggy Pops. <laughs> and I says again, sorry, who is it you're after again? I'm looking for Eggy Pops. So I said, Eggy Pops? She says, yeah, yes, please. I said, I think. <laughs> I think he's in the next room, love. I think he's in the next one, along. <laughs> Thank you. And she toddled off. And I often think about that young woman and uh, where she might be now in the world, what she does for a job and that, and whether she actually ever found Eggy Paps. I am a passenger And I ride, and I ride I ride through the city backsides I see the stars come out of the sky Yeah, the bright and hollow sky You know it looks so good tonight This is a nice story. Some uh, very exciting news about the band that I played at the end of episode three, an unsigned band from Manchester called Cabbage. There's been a series of events that have happened really quickly as a direct result of me playing that track at the end of that episode. And it's a great example of how quickly things can happen in this modern age of ours. In the 30 odd years or so that I've been in the industry, I've never seen a series of events unfold so quickly for a new unsigned band. So episode three of this podcast... I think I recorded it January the 18th and there's a track on there at the end of it, Kevin, by a Manchester man called Cabbage, who were pretty unknown. They'd only done three gigs. I think I saw them at the fourth gig, which was February the 19th, so four weeks after I played the track on the podcast. And it was an amazing gig. Everybody in the room was blown away. They were brilliant. And as soon as I came away from the gig, I sent a message to a friend of mine. So this is before midnight on the, on the night of the gig. And I sent a message to him saying, have you heard this band? You do need to check them out. This friend of mine is one of the most successful band managers currently working in the North, maybe even in the country. Things that he works with seem to be turned into gold, right? And he's pretty choosy about who he works with. I got onto him, I spoke to him the next day, I said, you need to get on this quick. And he checked him out and he agreed on the spot. He loved him and he agreed to manage him. So that meant that within days, because this guy's got so much credibility, record companies were coming to check his band out. One of the country's top agencies on board assembling a UK tour for them as we speak, 14, 15 dates or something. 
And because of my manager friend's involvement, some friends who I was at the BBC, BBC introducing in Manchester, checked the band out. They loved it as well. And they've now chosen Cabbage as one of three or four Manchester acts that are going to get played on Radio 1, on New Stevens' show, Tuesday 29th of March, next Tuesday. They're going to be on national radio. So that means that little domino effect that started on episode three of this podcast nine weeks ago, from that moment to the band getting national airplay on the country's biggest radio station, picking up serious management and record company interest on the way, it's only taken nine weeks. It's incredible. The artist I played last week on the podcast, Stephen Gormley from Dublin, a.k.a. Moon Looks On, he's going to get his first national airplay next week on Radio X again as a direct result of me putting him on last week's episode. And it's the power of the podcast. It's the power of this amazing era we live in, this online generation that we're part of. I'm going to give you a little reminder of the track Kevin by Cabbage, and then I'm going to get singer Lee on the phone. Whereabouts are you, Lee? I'm in Mosley. I'm in our mill, in our secret den. Secret den. Cabbage Central, is it? Yes. <laughs> I've just been saying on my podcast, there's been a lot happening in the last eight eight weeks or so in your world. Everything's sort of just started happening, hasn't it? Yeah. It, um, well, it's just, yeah, it's, it's been snowballing at the minute, yeah. Not really had a chance to breathe. I've <laughs> uh, got April off. Well, April's sort of nothing but in at the minute, so we can get keep in the secret den and write a load of tunes. Yeah, that's, that's good. good. Link. That was a good gig the other night. I saw the Deaf Institute supporting the tapestry. Yeah. It was brilliant, wasn't it? Yeah. There was a bit of an incident, wasn't there? Because the, um, you jumped off stage to dance with the crowd, and when you tried getting back on, I think the bouncer thought you were a stage invader, so he tried pulling you off, so to speak, didn't he? I'm the bouncer's worst enemy, but luckily I had a superhero who died in and uh, told him who I was. Who, who was that then? <laughs> it was Mr. Boone. The Boone. I died. I died. I got all of his head. I said, "He's in the fucking band like that." Yeah, like I said, I didn't have a clue. I was like, uh, normally, well, you see, you've heard about a few last gigs. Bouncers got it into me. They grabbed me everywhere because like, I like to, I like to get involved. Yeah. And uh, I got backstage, and everyone was like, "Did you see who fucking? Did you see who it was? You grabbed you off. It was fucking Boone. That was brilliant. Bloody hell!" <laughs> you know, everyone's going mad for it. But yeah. Nice one for that. <laughs> hey, you're welcome. So listen, you've got, you've got some decent management now. You've got record companies sniffing about. You've got a big agent putting a tour together for you. Yeah, in May. All, all you've got to do now is hold it together and not, not blow it all, innit? <laughs> well, that's it. April said we're going to sit in this room with a, with a bottle of whiskey and just keep backing out the tunes, I think, hopefully. Keep writing them songs and uh, let's see what comes up. What are your ambitions for the future? What kind of band would you like to achieve the sort of status of? Uh. It's a bit hard to call. I'm, I'm really fond of the way Devo worked and like quite fond of the Damned at the moment. Yeah, brilliant. Um, that's that's more of a, that's more of like a visual fanfare. The way the way I perceive us as something like Devo and what Damned have achieved. And, and to be honest, just the, the only ambition at the moment is to just get out there and be as provocative and subversive as possible. Because I suppose that's what music quite needs at the moment, especially the political and social state of the country and the world. And Whatnot. So that's the kind of band we're going to be. Our only ambition is to get out there and shake, shake shit up, I suppose. It's good because you can shake it up, but you're having a laugh as well, and that comes across in the music. You've well, yeah, we've always said it, Hubert, you know, we, we have a, we have a quite a violent political status about us, but at the same time, dark humour is imperative to what we do, and uh, like, that's the only way, I mean, that's the only way I have to see people can understand such a poignant message. If you put such, like, comedians have been doing it for years, haven't they? Yeah. You put, like, such a, such a powerful message behind dark humour then and everyone latches onto it and they sort of see what, what you're actually doing what kind of strings you're pulling that's what we've 
uh, been trying to achieve at the moment. Anyway, it's, it's worked, it's worked. Everyone's grabbed, grabbed onto it. Quite surprised, to be honest. Yeah, it's good. I was saying something earlier on as well. It feels like there's a nice little scene appearing in Manchester. For the first time in years, a cohesive sort of scene, particularly garage bands, well, guitar yeah. bands, like yourselves, all sticking together and helping each other out. Uh, have you seen that from your point of view? Do you see that little scene happening? Uh, there's two things on the point of that. When we played, we played with Blossoms recently at uh, Liverpool Academy. Yeah. And one of my mates was in the crowd watching, and he, he heard these two lads from Liverpool talking, and he was like, fucking hell, all the bands are coming from Manchester at the minute now, aren't they? Like, Pouring out. They've obviously, I don't know who they've been here or who they were talking about, but they seem to think that a bit of a guitar scene is coming out of Manchester at the moment. We've got an idea to um, get a club night going, which we want to try and, try and you know, push that onto Manchester and see if like, we can keep on a scene. I mean, there's a few good club nights out there, but we, we want to sort of promote some sort of political and social movement sort of with, with the music and the, and the humour, of course. Yeah. Sounds great. Well, listen, uh, it's going to be exciting seeing how things progress for you over the next few years, so you keep up the good work. Go and drink that bottle of whiskey, spend yeah, April writing songs, then we'll see where you're up to in May. <laughs> yeah, we've got the Boone Army flag hanging out the window anyway, so don't worry there, Clint. Hey, listen, I've got a house full of Boone Army banners if you want to borrow one. <laughs> yeah, send, send one up. <laughs> we'll do, yeah. Stick it on the station next gig, sponsored by Boone oh, Army. definitely. <laughs> I'll, I'll, well, in fact, I'll just go on naked covered in a Boone Army banner. That sounds great to me. <laughs> Listen, Lee, <laughs> give me regards to the boys. Keep up the great work, brother. Right, thank you so much, Clint. Eating my drool and not stealing food or hiding in the loose. I'm tracked up on the hot counter to serve a ball of food. A fat teacher approaches with a wobbly hip and a politely informer that we're all out of chips. I have the new potatoes and she absolutely flips On every episode of my podcast I like to pick a song that I've written over the years and talk about how and why I created it. This week's something quite unusual which today has never been released although it's something that I'm hoping to make available soon. On episode 7 of Storytime, I talked about the NG Benji theme tune that I wrote for Granada TV back in uh, the year 2000 or thereabouts. Soon after that, I was asked to write and record a full album of songs about the, the characters and the vehicles in NG's world. It's a 15-track album, and I still consider it to be some of my best work, which is why I'm working on trying to get the thing out there still. Because of changes in 2004 where Granada Television got integrated into ITV, and because the programme's makers, the people that made NG Benji, Cosgrove Hall, pretty much stopped operating for a while. This album has pretty much sat on a shelf for the last 12 years. When I wrote the album and recorded it, I wanted it to appeal to kids and parents as well. There's a lot of reference points in there for grown-ups, in the music, and you know some of the styles of music in there, and in the lyrics as well. There's all sorts in there. I know what it's like when you're a parent, especially of preschoolers, and they want to listen to the same tunes over and over, or watch the same DVDs over and over. I know what a pain it can be if the music's a bit shit. You know what I'm on about, don't you? <laughs> and that's why I put so much effort into making this album uh, appeal to all ages. I spent a year of my life making it, every day for a year, pretty much. For those who don't know about NG Benji, he's an engine doctor, he's got blue hair, and he lives in this sort of marzipan-looking world. His best friends are his dog, Jollop, his van down, and like various characters and vehicles that inhabit this crazy world with him. The song I'm going to talk to you about today is uh, one that I wrote for Pilot Pete. Nice bloke. He's got a plane. The plane's called Plane. He's a pilot. His name's Pete. You get the picture. 
Pete's a nervous kind of chap, always worrying about this, that and the other. And one part of the song refers to uh, an epidemic of blue measles, <laughs> which broke out in the Engie world on one episode. Thankfully, there was no lasting harm to any of the characters, they all got over it. I love a lot of things about this song, particularly at the end, but I really strove, if that's the right word, to get a Beach Boys sort of vibe. I think I managed to do that nicely. It's a track that I'm very proud of. Something really strange happened as well. The day that I finished the album, I'd spent pretty much all of 2004 making this thing. I'd record a track, do a mix, drive down to Cosgrove Hall, which is in Charlton, just outside Manchester, and I'd play the track to Bridget Appleby. She was the, the lady that created NG Benji. So all along, you know, all through the songwriting process, I'd be keeping her up to date with what I was doing, see if there's anything she didn't like. So, you know, I was always driving backwards and forwards, sometimes two or three times a day to Charlton, to the Cosgrove Hall studios, because this was in the days before you could send music down the line, you know, just sending MP3, you know, we have a listen. You know, did you get that wav? There's none of that knocking out CDs, you know what I mean, and, and a lot of petrol. So I spent most of the year doing this album, and I kept saying to my wife that once I've got the NG Benji album out of the way, I'm going to try and find a permanent radio gig. Because at that point, I'd only ever done bits of like standing in here and there for people like Terry Christian. I used to do a bit for him on Century, and I did a little bit on Six Music. And so I was always doing little bits of radio, but I never had a regular gig. I wanted my own gig every week. And I'm thinking, even if it's in the middle of the night, one night a week, that'll do. I just want a permanent, regular radio gig. I want to have a go at it. And the very morning that I finished this album, I finished the very last mix of the very last song. And the moment I knew the project was completed, it was the 1st of November 2004, it was in the morning. And as the last note finished on the final playback on me, in my studio at home, I pushed my chair back from my mixing desk, put my feet up on the desk, arms behind my head. So I'm in my little attic studio in Stockport, Offerton, Stockport, Biddeford Road. And it was number 11A. Number 11A, I just remember the door number. 11A, Biddeford Road. So the morning I finished that last mix, pushed my chair back, put my feet up, arms behind my head like Jobs are good. And my phone beeped in Nokia, whatever it was. And there was a message. And right out of the blue, from a friend I'd not spoken to for years, two or three years at least, he lived in London. He's called Cav. He's a musician. He's still on the scene now. Check him out. And the message said that he'd had a meeting with the people from XFM in London. This was before XFM Manchester, obviously. There was only XFM in London. And the message said that they were going to try and win this licence that was uh, becoming available to broadcast in Manchester and they were going to set up a, a radio station in Manchester they got the licence and they wanted me on board to sort of be one of the faces of the campaign and then if they won the licence I would get a radio show and XFM eventually won the bid they beat seven or eight other radio companies they got this licence and I got this incredible opportunity to be part of this amazing radio station which I did, I presented five shows a week for XFM Manchester for the next decade I did Two and a half thousand shows, roughly. And all that started the minute that I finished working on this. This is me in my attic in Stockport, 2004, with a little song for Pilot Pete, and it's called The Little What If Song. Here's my little what if song. It isn't gonna take long to sing it to you. It's about the things that I worry about each day. Things like, what if I lose my friend playing? What if he gets blue measles again? What if Angie isn't home? 
What if Cholo's lost his bone? Will the plane next year run low? Will Finger Mountain be under snow? What will the weather do? What if I ever lose you? But it's always good to know Angie Benji's waiting to go He and the team will put things right Me and Play know the future's bright mm. I hope you liked my little what if song I knew it wouldn't take long to sing it to you It was about the things that I worried about each My little what if song The worries that I had all day long I had my doubts and my fears But now my skies are all clear Just my little what if song Just my little what if song Just my little what if song Have you ever tried explaining the word irony to a nine-year-old? It's one of them words, isn't it? It's not an object. It's not really an action. It's just, it's irony, isn't it? Anyway, so a few days ago, my little boy, Hector Angel, who's nine, asked me what the word irony means. And I thought, that's a tricky one, that, to explain to a nine-year-old. So I said, right, you know, a couple of months ago, when we give you your own iPhone, and he said, yeah, I said, right. And at the time, I said, right, Hector, a couple of things I need to do before I give you this. And I got the phone and I went into the settings and I made a few changes using a secret password. I said, do you remember that? I said, yeah. I said, this device that I'm giving you is an interface to the world and there's a lot of evil stuff out there. Do you know that? He said, yeah. And I said at the time, I'm doing this to protect you from some of the bad people on the internet. And I there, yeah. And I remember saying to you, there's a lot of nasty stuff out there and the people saying bad things, swearing all over the place, not the kind of stuff I want my kids watching or listening to. Do, do you remember that? He said, yeah. And do you remember I went in, I changed the settings on your phone. I put firewalls up. I put content blockers in place. I restricted this. I restricted that. Do you remember? He said, yeah. And do you remember what a big deal I made of it? He said, oh, yeah. And I said, and then last week, when we were driving to Wales, do you remember? And I was going on about how you guys had really liked some of the stories I've been telling on my podcast. He said, yeah, I remember that. And I said to you, you guys could really learn about some of the things I've been doing in my life and you could really benefit from knowing what makes me tick, what goes inside me. Do you remember? He said, yeah, Dad, I remember that. And then you went on the internet on your phone, didn't you? You tried downloading story time with Boone, didn't you? While I was going on to myself about how you might even feel a bit more proud of me than you already did do. Do you remember that? He said, yeah. And then do you remember you passed your phone over to me in the car and you said, Dad, it's not working. And when I looked at it, it said, 
can't download because this podcast contains explicit content. Do you remember that? He says, yeah. So then I had to go in and I had to unlock all the settings for you so that you could listen to me telling stories with swearing in them and adult content. Do you remember? He said, yeah. I said, well, that Hector Angel Boom is a great example of the meaning of the word irony. And we continued on that trip to Wales. We had a, a wonderful visit with some good friends of ours during which our children witnessed us, amongst other things, running up and down a beach with traffic cones on our heads, shooting a rifle at empty red stripe cans, and the mate Johnny launching rockets out of the crack of his arse. So much for parental advisory explicit content. Rocket man, Okay, that's it for another week. Thanks for listening again. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button if you've not already done so. That way the podcast will automatically pop into your device as soon as it goes live. Don't forget to check out the Spotify playlist that I put together for each episode. You'll get the full versions of all the tracks on there and loads more besides. Thanks as always to Distorted Productions for putting story time together with me every week. And thanks again to our friends at Red's True Barbecue in Manchester. If you're interested in new music, do watch out for my new podcast, Clint Boone's Set to Go. For all of you that might be looking to get your new music out there, or if you're looking for cool new unsigned music to listen to, all the details are at the beginning of this episode. Uh, You can follow at CBSetToGo on Twitter, and you can subscribe on iTunes. Follow me on Twitter, at TheRealBoon, or Facebook to keep an eye on all the other stuff that I'm up to. And the Storytime with Boone podcast will still feature an unsigned band at the end of every episode, as we have been doing. Today I'm going to leave you with a, another Manchester band called the Dantervilles. There's a real nice scene starting to happen in Manchester now. For the first time in years, a lot of guitar bands, great guitar bands, working together, helping each other out. Dantervilles, the one that I just bumped into last week. Connor McNicholas on vocals and bass. Jamie Gallagher, vocals and guitar. Paul Tanton, lead guitar. Corey Devine on drums. What a great name, Corey Devine. They've got a real unusual style. They've got two singers both with slightly different styles, and it works really well. It's a really unusual combination. They formed in October of 2014. Paul, Jamie and Connor moved in together in Fallowfield. Corey lived around the corner, started recording demos in the front room, and then began gigging. First gig was the same month at Night and Day, which is a a lovely little venue in the northern quarter of Manchester. The track I'm going to play, Colour, interesting story about this. They've just released it on a a little self-financed EP. It was played at Old Trafford for the FA Cup quarter-final at half-time. So just after Glory, Glory, Man United, the big tune, they put this on over the PA. So the band didn't know they were rehearsing that afternoon. They found out a couple of hours before it was played that somebody was going to play it, the DJ was going to play it in the half-time break. So the band all jumped on a tram, legged it down to the, the ground, thinking they might be able to blag in. They've all got the guitars and everything with them. And they caught the last 20 seconds of it being played because what happened, a steward let them stick their heads through the turnstile. He said, I can't let you in, but you can lean in here and have a listen. So they're all there, four lads, with their heads stuck through this turnstile, all buzzing and clapping. And what a moment. Can you imagine that, that, how, what a buzz that must have felt like? Unsigned band. I think there's only one United fan, and I think it's Connor that's the United fan. The others are all like, it's only United, it's not a big deal. But it is, it's a big deal, isn't it? 50,000, 60,000 people 
hearing this track over the PA and the commentator, this is Dan Tibbles, and a track called Colour, they're from round here. What an amazing moment, I can totally relate to that. I'm going to leave you this week with Dan Tibbles from Manchester and a track called Colour. See you next week, lots of love to you. Story time with Boone with Red's True Barbecue. Subscribe now on iTunes. Conduct, conduct the high you speak. Hold out the red, that anger and dread. Paint the gray, let's live in yesterday. I feel the same.